following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to do two things. The first thing that I want to do is I want to give you an abbreviated version of the sermon that I have been preparing to preach on this day for weeks now, the one that fits with our series. And after I've done an abbreviated version of that sermon, uh, between five and ten minutes probably, I want to share with you some thoughts that I have about what's happening in our country, about the election on Tuesday, and about what that might mean for all of us as one body here at Artisan, one body as the church. All right? And I, I'm, the way I'm going to do that is in the form of a pastoral letter, which I will be publishing later, but I want to read it to you today. Not because it's perfect, but because it will probably um, prevent me from going too far afield if I read it to you. So I hope that that's okay. But first, I don't want to leave aside the message for today because um, the letter's not that long, actually. <laughs> and the message today is one that I think is important for us to hear, too. So uh, we are in this series studying the book of Deuteronomy. We've been in it for several weeks. We have one more week next week. And if you can believe such a thing, the week after that is the first Sunday in Advent. Um, I know that time is marching on. So one of the things that we've been doing during this series is uh, considering the fact that this is an, a, a Jewish text, it's an Old Testament book of the Bible, uh, we are in a Christian church, that is our particular belief, and so we read that text, it's inherited, it's part of our faith, but we read it through uh, the lenses of Christ, if you will. We are Jesus' people, and we read these, uh, these Jewish sacred texts um, with Jesus' eyes, if you will. Uh, and that works really well because it turns out Jesus actually quoted from the book of Deuteronomy quite often in his ministry, and, and today's uh, one of those, I'll give you one of those examples today. So there's a story in the New Testament. It's told in a few different places in the New Testament, and yes, the details vary a little bit between the different accounts, but we don't need to fret about that. Um, the version that I will be sharing with you is from Matthew's Gospel, and uh, the specific text will be on the screen in a second, and if you are a person who loves to see the exact words, you can look them up um, in the red Bibles that are all around here, or if you have your own Bible, you can look it up there as well. What I'm going to do is summarize this, because then I'm going to get to one that I'll actually read to you in a minute. What happens in this story is that Jesus is having dinner with some friends. Jesus was fond of having dinner with his friends, just like you and I are, and um, <clears throat> At that dinner, a woman comes up to him with an expensive jar of perfume and she breaks it open and pours it on Jesus' head. Um, we don't pour oil or perfume on each other's heads nowadays, but this was an extravagant act of worship. She was saying to everybody there um, who she thought Jesus was. The disciples... Uh, the people who followed Jesus around and listened to his teachings and understood everything perfectly, just like you and I do. The disciples were furious at this, uh, this occurrence for, well, probably for a handful of reasons, most of which they did not articulate. <laughs> but the reason that they did give was this. They said this expensive bottle of perfume, instead of being poured out this way, could have been sold, and all that money could have been used to help the poor. It's always good when you have a reason to complain about something to frame it with um, 
the appearance of concern for the less fortunate. And Jesus responds to them with a statement that I think a lot of us find confusing and cryptic, uh, but one that is really quite widely known. And even if you didn't grow up in the church and don't go to church regularly, I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard this statement that Jesus makes in response to this criticism of the woman. He says to them, the poor you will always have with you. A lot of you have heard that before. The poor you will always have with you. You always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. And what she has done is right and good and true because she has, uh, she has prepared my body for burial. Um, your impending death is not usually good dinner conversation, uh, but it's Jesus, so we'll let him talk how he wants to talk. Now this statement, the poor you will always have with you, has been used at times to explain away the existence of poverty in our world. And I say explain away because usually when people quote it in this, in this, for this reason, it's in response to a call for more concern for the poor, more social programs, more giving from your own pocketbook, whatever it might be. And people have been known to say, Well, biblically, we know that the poor will always be with us. Jesus told us that the poor will always be with us. This is a problem we cannot solve, and so stop bothering me about it. That's that's a caricature, but that's essentially the response that some people, or the, the, the way that some people talk when they quote this particular text. The poor will always have with us. We can't do that much about it. Just live with the reality. And of course, we could have, and some of us have had, reasonable and respectful debates about the best ways to address poverty in our world. Some people think that more social programs are a good idea. Some people think that social programs make the problem worse. Some people think that we should all give more of our own money. Some people think that they want to hold on to their money. Uh, Some people think this organization is good. Others think that organization is good, etc., etc., etc. Those reasonable and respectful debates could happen, but that's not the point today. The point of this brief sermon, I want to give you uh, a little bit more about the meaning of that statement, the poor you'll always have with you. I want to tell you where it comes from in the broader context of the Bible. Can anybody guess what book it's from? And then I want to speculate a little bit about what Jesus might have meant, given that he didn't come up with this himself. This phrase was not original to him. And once we've done that, then we can do the work of saying, what might this have to say to us? You see, there's some layers of meaning that we have to peel back here. And so, to do that, let me ask you to turn to Deuteronomy 15 if you have a Bible in front of you. If you don't, you certainly are welcome simply to listen to this. It's not very long. Once again, the context of this book is that Moses has led the people to the edge of the promised land, and they're about to go into the land that God promised their ancestors generations and generations ago. And he reviews for them the entirety of the Jewish law and tells them, when you get in there... You should do it this way. You should be obedient to God or it will go badly for you. That's basically the the gist of the book. So here's part of that law that he reiterates for them on the cusp of the promised land. Deuteronomy 15. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. And this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. There will, however, be no one in need among you. 
Because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy, if only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you, as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there's anyone among you in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally, and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, now does that sound familiar? I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. So, this chapter in Deuteronomy is about what's called the year of remission. It's also known as the sabbatical year because it happens every seven years. And the idea is that anybody who has lent anything to anyone else in the community who hasn't been repaid has to forgive that debt. So if I have uh, loaned Todd uh, $100 and he can't repay me, I'm supposed to give him time. And if he can't repay me, I give him more time. And eventually, if it gets to be that seventh year, the year of remission, and he can't pay me, I have to forgive the debt. Doesn't matter how big it is or whatever reason. And uh, you shouldn't be stingy just because you see that year coming around the corner, right? If, if we knew that that system was in place, some of us would work the angles a little bit, wouldn't we? <laughs> like, oh, it's uh, next month. Could I borrow $500, right? And the, the commandment is, listen, don't be stingy just because the year of remission is coming. Now, every seventh sabbatical year, which is to say every 49 years, there's a special year called the year of Jubilee, hence the title of the sermon, Jesus and Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is the, uh, the, the great trumpet blast of liberty in the Jewish faith, when in addition to all the debts being forgiven, all the slaves would be freed and they'd go back to their original families, uh, all the property and the land that had changed hands would go back to its original owners, uh, and all the fields would lie fallow, they wouldn't be planted that year. And that's the year of Jubilee. But did you notice something a little bit weird and contradictory in this book, in this passage when we read it? If you look at verse 4 and 5, it says, There will be, however, no one in need among you. And verse 5 says, If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment. And then in verse 7, it says, If there's among you anyone in need, didn't he just say there would be no one in need? But if there is, here's what you're supposed to do. And then by the end of that passage, in verse 11, he says, Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, what's going on here? I mean, we expect contradictions in the Bible, but you'd think they'd be a little more careful about how closely together they put them, right? Well, what I think this passage is telling the Israelites is uh, poverty is your responsibility. And if you follow the commandments of God, there won't be any. And if there is some, it's because you're not following the commandments of God. See, then and now, God wants to work in the world, but God, uh, for whatever reason, decides to use us in part of that work. And it's our responsibility to carry it out. So, 
when we get to Jesus and this dinner party with the perfume and the criticism and Jesus saying, the poor you will always have with you, he knows that everybody in the room is a good, observant Jew who has, if not memorized, at least heard over and over and over again these words from Torah, from the Jewish scriptures. Since they will never cease to be poor in your land. And what would they know? The reason was for the poverty in their land, their own unwillingness to care for one another. And so, in my estimation, when Jesus rebukes his disciples, it is not to say, we will always have poor people with us, so don't worry about them. Worry about worshiping me. I think quite the contrary. What he's saying is, don't stop somebody from worshiping me because of the existence of poor people. There are poor people in the land because you don't care about them. There are poor people among us because you have not obeyed the commandments of God. So I think this is a rebuke of uh, their unwillingness to serve God, to serve their neighbors. Now sometimes, of course, as I hinted a moment ago, people will have a complaint about something that's going the way they don't like it. And they will voice that complaint, and the reason that they'll give, they'll call down some great virtuous truth. And what sometimes is, is the case <laughs> is that they haven't done squat to live into that virtuous truth in their own lives yet. They're just using it to sanctify their complaining. And worse, they're using it to attack and abuse somebody who's doing the right thing, who's, who's showing incredible love for God. And we should never use virtue as a weapon against our brothers and sisters in the faith. Amen. That's the, that's the f- ten minute version of the sermon. Um, <clears throat> so the next thing that I want to do, as I told you before, is share with you some thoughts about what's happening in our country and how that affects some of us in different ways. And uh, so I'm going to read to you this pastoral letter, which I will publish later today, after I take a nap. <laughs> um, <laughs> once again, I don't, uh, I, don't want, I don't claim that these words are perfect or complete, but um, they're, they're closer than they would be if I just sort of shot from the hip here, so... Allow me to read this to you. My dear friends, the election is behind us at last. I had hoped, probably foolishly, that by now the rancor that boiled over in the last month would be simmering down and that life would be on its way back to normal. But clearly that is not the case. Tensions are high. And if anything, the divide seems to be widening. But if we in the church are to be salt and light in our world, as Jesus commanded us, we must demonstrate an otherworldly unity, one that defies comprehension. But remember that my definition of Christian unity is not that we all agree on everything, 
Rather, it is that we commit to stay together in spite of our disagreements because we share a common bond in Jesus Christ. And so I want to address all of you, one group at a time, knowing that the differences that are present in our sanctuary every Sunday threaten to build up dividing walls between us, walls that Jesus wants to break down. And as I address all of you, I want you to remember this promise from 1 John 4.18. Perfect love casts out fear. Can I ask you to say that with me? Perfect love casts out fear. First, and this has to be first, let me talk to those from marginalized populations who are feeling afraid for what might be coming to you in the next four years and indeed uh, afraid of what has already happened in the past four days. Because in less than a week, a few people I know personally already have experienced direct attacks based on their race, their gender, or their sexual orientation. And those attacks have claimed the name of our president-elect. And you don't have to look very far to find example after example after example of this happening across the country. I read a compilation of these events Uh, I guess it would have been late in the day on Wednesday or maybe on Thursday. It was called Day One in Trump's America. Some of you saw this as well, and if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you, look it up and watch it. Read it. There's there's some video, but it's mostly text. We all need to be aware. It's, It's painful, but we all need to read it. So I want you to know, if you are from a marginalized population, that this is a safe place that I am a safe person and pastor, that I see your fear and your pain, I affirm that it is real and that it is justified. And I'm sorry that this election has exposed you to even more abuse and hate than you already had to deal with. We will stand up for you. Perfect love casts out fear. And if we love you perfectly, we can reduce your fear. And we pledge to do it. If you need my counsel, my voice, or just my listening ear, know that my door is open to you. And now, to those of you in the room who voted for Donald Trump, who are already feeling uneasy about where this letter is going, you have been buried in criticism on social media this week, but I believe that you are good and decent people. I assume the best about each of you. I assume that you voted your conscience. I know that you are hurting in many ways too, and your vote might have been an expression of that pain and of your best hope for how to stop it. And now the wave of public opinion is washing away your fears again. I hear you too, and I am your pastor too, and I love you too, and I will stand up for you if you need it. But it is important for you to know and remember that there are people who sit right next to you in our sanctuary who absolutely will be affected by this in a negative way. You are not hateful people, but there are some who are. And the unavoidable truth of this election is that they are emboldened right now. 
And as a result, people are really rattled. And it is justifiable. So I want to encourage you as your pastor to listen to those who are expressing their fear and to trust them with their own deepest insecurities. Imagine you're a parent and you have a daughter. And you're tucking your daughter into bed at night. And she says to you, I'm scared that the wolves will get me. You wouldn't roll your eyes at her. You wouldn't tell her she was imagining things. You wouldn't tell her to stop engaging in identity politics. You'd love her, and you would tell her that you will protect her, even if you didn't think that it was possible that a wolf would ever get into her bedroom. Because perfect love casts out fear. By the way, this would be even more true if instead of being in your house, you were camping in the woods and you could actually hear the wolves howling. And to be honest, I think the world is a little bit more like a tent than a bedroom right now. So, the other thing I will encourage you to do as your pastor is to publicly condemn and distance yourself from the horrifying behaviors that we have seen this week. You may think that it goes without saying. You may think that it won't do any good. But I can promise you it will mean a lot to someone you love if you do that. And now, to the allies, the hashtag never Trumpers, who are from majority culture and who could slide by on privilege right now with nothing to fear, but who've chosen to stand up. Thank you for standing up for those who are marginalized, for those who are at greater risk of harm, for loss of access, for loss of rights, I will join you in the struggle to, def- to defend those who need it. But let's keep the focus where it belongs, which is on helping the people we love who need us right now. Please understand, allies, that many of the people who voted for Donald Trump are kind and decent people who had no intention of bringing about more oppression, people who would absolutely welcome black or brown or queer or disabled people into their homes without a second thought and without a moment's prejudice. Remember that in some cases they voted this way because they've experienced their own kind of marginalization which you might not be able to see. Yelling at them and shaming them on Facebook is not going to change their minds. In fact, it's more likely that it will entrench their views and that it will drive them toward those extremes. And worse, it makes you feel like you've done your part when you haven't. Perfect love casts out fear. If our actions are not rooted in love, if our words are not spoken in love, they will not have the effect that we hope they will have. So I would advise you as your pastor, focus lots and lots of energy on public policy. Call your representatives. Stand up for your friends and their interests when the time comes. March and protest and chant. I would suggest finding a better phrase than not my president. And I would ask you to do it peacefully because as you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch. Keep voting. But do not be pulled into the trap of demonizing your brothers and sisters because of the vote they cast. 
Work hard against authoritarianism, but work even harder to build bridges of understanding with your fellow citizens. My dear friends, perfect love casts out fear. The first meaning of this verse, the way that's closest to John's original intention when he wrote it, is this. The love of God in Christ casts out the fear of death and punishment. Now, our job as Christians is to be little Christs throughout our world, reminding people that because God loves them, there is no need to be afraid of death or of punishment. Isn't it sad, by the way, that in the centuries since that sentence was written, the church has somehow become the world's biggest exporter of fear? But the way I'd like us to think about this verse today is more of an extension of that original meaning. And it's this, if we love each other perfectly well, we will cast out fear from among us. And here are the ways that we can love each other perfectly well. This is not a comprehensive list and I encourage you to find your own. We love each other perfectly by listening openly, by assuming the best of each other, by comforting those who mourn and standing up for those who are wronged, by putting the needs of others first, by admitting when we are wrong. And most importantly, by forgiving each other as Christ has forgiven us. This is the Christian ethic. The sign of this forgiveness sits on our table every time we gather. In the bread and in the wine, Christ is really present among us. Perfect love casts out fear. And it is only His love which is perfect. So as we gather and partake together, let us imagine that we have all been invited to the same royal banquet. And although we may be seated next to someone we wouldn't have invited to our own table, we are both guests of the same king. We have both needed and received the same grace. And by accepting this meal, we are made one in Christ. And we are now bound up in each other's story. So come. Come alone. Come with friends. Come with foes. Come however you are. Just come. Perfect love casts out fear. It is my honor to be your pastor. Our table is an open table. And it's not my table. It's not Artisan's table. It's not our denomination's table. It's not a Republican table. It's not a Democrat table. It's the table of the Lord. And he offers himself to you in this place today, whoever you are. You don't need to be a member of our church or of any church. You simply have to be saying, yes, Jesus, I am following you in your way. 
He invites you to his table. I invite you to his table. And you can come and receive. Uh, take a piece of the bread, remembering Christ's body, which is broken for you, for all of us, and dip it in the cup. We have both wine and juice. Please choose the one that would be more appropriate for you and for your family. Dipping it in that, remembering the blood which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you take that into your body, you are receiving Jesus into you, into your life. It's food for your souls. It's an act of remembrance of his sacrifice. But today, more than ever, may it be for us the sacrament of unity that binds us up into one story together. And oh, may it change our hearts. As I said earlier, I hope this sacrament works. I believe it does. Otherwise, I wouldn't offer it to you. So come and receive. There will also be a member of the prayer team here. If you'd like to receive personal prayer, you can do that. And it's, it's always okay simply to sit and observe in this time if that's more appropriate for you. And parents, please go and collect your kids and involve them in the, last, the rest of our service. Our table is open. Let's continue to worship him together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.